Hello, and welcome to the Short Gun Sportsman, a podcast about handgun hunting brought to you by Handgun Hunters International. My name is Ryan Hoover, and I'm your host. I believe handgun hunting is the most rewarding way to hunt, and it's something I want to share with as many people as I can. If you are at all interested in getting your own game meat, I want to challenge you to a way of hunting that is good for both your spirit and your body, so you can become the confident, self-reliant person you were meant to be. Hello again, handgun hunters, and welcome back to the Shortgun Sportsman. Today, I'm going to be talking again with Dick Thompson. We talked about some of his hunting experience. Of course, we can't not talk about guns a little bit, but he's had a lot of experience and done a lot of cool things and has a lot of advice to offer. We got into open sight shooting. He had a wild experience with a mountain lion, etc. But before we get into it, I want to tell you a quick story. The other day on the forum the members forum on the Handgun Hunters International website, we, uh, one of our members posted a picture of himself that I reposted to social media of a bear that he had shot with a Taurus revolver. He won as an HHI from one of the HHI giveaways last year in 2022. And I just wanted to say that that is one of the major reasons that HHI invests in the, in the handgun community by, through our giveaways is the, opportunity to share some handgun hunting equipment with our members so that they can be successful with it in the field. Sometimes it's been things where people never would have thought to buy them or things that, you know, maybe seem a little out of their price range, but we're giving it away and they're just so grateful. And I love seeing that kind of success. And that is why we do it. And that is why you should join Handgun Hunters International. All HHI members are automatically entered to win our giveaways. Our giveaways are always worth way more than membership costs because I love giving back to our community and we're going to continue to do it. Our giveaways are not gimmicks and I hope you'll consider joining HHI. Just go to handgunhuntersinternational.com and check us out and you can contact me through that website if you have any other questions. Okay, now on to my conversation part two with Dick Thompson. Dick Thompson, thanks for joining me again. You have the distinct honor of being the first person I've done a two-part episode with. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm honored. Well, that's how much I enjoyed. I mean, we could probably do a dozen, but this is I really enjoy talking to you. And to in our last podcast, we talked about a few things, you know, casting bullets, your friendship with Elmer Keith, a lot about guns, etc. And and I realized that in order to fit in a lot of your hunting experience, we probably needed to do a part two. So that's what I want to talk about today. Uh, just just yeah. as a recap, I know you spent a lot of time in Texas, and that's kind of where you got your love for the handgun hunting thing. You had some good mentors down here. But as far as hunting is concerned, what are some of the, you know, starting from when you began, what are some of the more memorable hunts that you've had? And I know you've hunted a lot of places. Uh, well, talking about starting in, uh, Texas, I, uh, you know, from being there that, uh, all of that land is private and I was, uh, I didn't get to hunt the first year I was there in 66. I didn't know anyone. Mm. And, uh, well, I did go down. I think one, I think one time we went down two or three of us in my little Volkswagen, uh, to Possum Kingdom and we bow hunted. And uh, that's that's about all we did in '66. In and then, as I started working in that Gibson's Discount Center, I started meeting 
guys, uh, farmers and stuff would come in and I uh, hit up a friendship with a guy from Whitesboro and a guy named uh, Dub Carney and Dub uh, would invite me out to his place and I got hunting uh, there and, and Dub and his brother, uh, his brother's name was Earl, but for some reason they called him Hoof, H-O-O-F. And they had a lease down at Brownwood. And uh, so in 67, I got to go down to Brownwood and uh, hunt their lease. And they had a real good lease, a lot of turkeys and whitetails. And I'd always uh, shoot a whitetail or two. Yeah, At that time, a hunting license was $3.15. And there was four deer tags attached to that license. Wow. I don't know if it's still now or not. There was two on each end. Hmm. And we have, uh, let's see, the super combo now licensed hunting and fishing is $68. And in my county, we get five deer. Two, oh, I see. Two bucks and three does. Okay. This was, uh, I think this was one buck and three does, hmm. I think is what hmm. it was at the time. It was two tags on each end. It was $3 and 15 cents. Oh, wow. And like I say, I, I met him through the store and he just, took me in and just treated me just like one of his sons. He had a daughter and two sons, but he'd take me down to his lease, him and Hoof, and he had an old school bus uh, converted into a camper, had uh, three sets of bunk beds in there, and uh, we just had a wonderful time, and uh, would shoot deer and turkeys and and just had it all to ourselves, and we did, <laughs> I can't even describe how much fun we had down there. But uh, that was my initiation into uh, Texas hunting and whitetail and turkeys. And there weren't any hogs on there at the time. The hogs weren't as uh, distributed at that time in different parts of Texas like they are now. I started out, I, I had a, uh, a Remington 700 in a uh, six millimeter at first. And then uh, uh, I think the second year I went with Dub is when I took my... Uh, that four-inch Smith & Wesson uh, Model 57, 41 mag, and uh, killed the whitetail with that. But I was still into rifles at the time, buying a few at the store when I could afford it. But uh, at that time, those BDL Remingtons were $116. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah. Let me ask you, when you, the, your first, so your first big game with a handgun was the, was a whitetail. Was there anything, because I, I like to ask, this to, to people who have been doing it for a while. Is there anything you remember specifically about that hunt, um, doing it the first time with a handgun that sticks with you? Well, it was just, it was almost like a, I don't know, like a little kid at Christmas. It just, every time you shoot something with a handgun, it kind of renews that interest in hunting. That, you know, even if it's a doe, even if it's a small buck, uh, that never has bothered me. I've never been someone that holds out for a really large animal, except for when I moose hunted. But it just, that thrill of taking something with a handgun never goes away. You, you just always have that. And that's uh, from the first one I ever shot until uh, the one that I shot last year. I just always had that same feeling. There's just something about taking something with a handgun whether it's a single shot handgun, it doesn't make any difference. You do it with a handgun, it's uh, it's an accomplishment. 
and to do it with you know with a hand load whether it be a jacketed bullet or a cast bullet uh, I tease people about that but I'm always joking it doesn't matter what you take if it's with a handgun a deer elk or bear or rabbit doesn't matter I couldn't agree more. I mean, and it's actually good to hear you saying that you have a few years on me and, and to be able to look forward because you're, you're, you're echoing a lot of sentiments that I've heard from other hunters and to be able to look forward to many years of still getting that enjoyment when I hunt, because that's exactly what I've found is every, t- and you put it perfectly, every time it renews your love for hunting. It, it is a renewing uh, experience every time. So moving on, you, after you got out of the military, you moved back to Idaho, correct? Yes. And so what was it like getting into the, the sport up there? Well, here it's so different because I've always lived in country here in Idaho where it's uh, I don't know what the percentage is, but a huge percentage of Idaho is public land. You can go anywhere, and within just a matter of minutes, you can be hunting public land, and you never know. It can be deer, elk, bear, mountain lion. Uh, Go a little bit north of here, and you're hunting antelope. Uh, We have a lot of moose, a tremendous amount of moose just to the east of where I live between here and the Wyoming border. Uh, when I shot my moose, I hunted 27 days and seen 37 moose. Mm. And uh, twice I passed up a record book moose because it was still in velvet and I thought I could still find it. But I, I've got probably 20 or 30 minutes of video of that moose as I was actually hunting it. And then it ended up I couldn't find it uh, and ended up shooting a small bull with uh, my Ruger 480 revolver. A tremendous hunt, one of the most enjoyable hunts I ever had because of all of the, of the 50-something years my wife and I have been married, she went with me two times on that hunt. She's seen that large bull both times. And one time I actually talked me out of it. She said, we don't want to go home today. And I'm looking at this bull at about 35 yards in a beaver pond. And it's a record book bull, but it's in velvet. And I passed it up. That's, that's the way it goes sometimes. So um, backing up, when you get back to Idaho, what, what, what is your, what's the first thing you get into? As far as after uh, after you left Texas, you go you have this experience. Your buddies Dub and Hoof, they've kind of taken you under their wing, and you know you've killed whitetail. And uh, but now you're back in bigger country with a lot of public land. What's kind of the first thing that you, kind of the first hunting that you set out to do with a handgun when you got back? Well, uh, we had already been hunting the Selway country, my brothers and I, and uh, that fall. We uh, took the horses, and I didn't. Have, I don't think I had a mule in. I, just, I think I did the following year. But anyway, we packed it back into the Selway country, which is extremely rugged and uh, remote. You have to have uh, usually have to have two horses per person. Packed up the Selway River, and I killed a huge bull with my old model flat top forty four uh, Keith cast bullet, and. Uh, and I actually won a rifle uh, where I was working. It was the uh, third largest elk ever taken uh, at that hunt club, and I did it with the 44 flat top. And I send you a picture. Of it. I've posted a picture of that bull many times, mm-hmm. but uh, 
there was just elk everywhere, and that's where I, I told you that a lot of those elk were dying of old age and never seen a person. That elk, that country was so rugged and remote before the wolves moved in that uh, you could go back in there, and there was it was a pretty simple task to to get elk because you could hunt them during the rut in September, and uh, it just took a lot of effort because you couldn't drive into that country. You had to either backpack in, which would be foolish on an elk hunt because <laughs> it'd be so far to pack one out. So you had to have good horses, good mountain horses, because there was a lot of people would go in there and have accidents. Uh, I seen people kill horses in there. Uh, actually seen the one horse go head over heels right down the mountain and land in the river. Mm. And I went down and helped this guy unload the horse and, and it eventually, eventually got it back up onto the trail, but it was a bad accident. Wow. One of the things that I think about and with hunting, and this is kind of a, a something that I've developed over the years, is that really to be successful, you just have to be there, right? And I know that sounds simple, but what I mean by that is there's so many people who, who think, who want to do it. I mean, I don't necessarily think it's always the easy way, but, you know, morning, morning hunt, evening hunt or we're not going to go very far into the backcountry, but it's the hunters who stay out all day, who go far enough into the backcountry where nobody is. They're the ones who usually find success. What do you think about that? that that's absolutely true. You, you have to pay your dues to be successful. And you see the guys that year after year are successful. It's like a, like a good, successful uh, football coach or, or someone else they they are putting in the time and paying their dues and doing certain things the right way and then and in this country uh most of these mountain ranges run in a north south direction and the uh the, the, none of this that i'm telling you is set in stone some things are a little bit different but for the most part the mountain ranges run north and south, and the heavy timber will be on the north-facing slopes and the east-facing slopes. And so that's where the animals live. Uh, they'll come out of that cover and then feed sometimes on the uh, west-facing and the south-facing slopes because they're more open, and that's where the feed's at. But you have to, here, you have to pay attention to the wind and uh, cold air is heavy air, and so in the mornings it goes downhill, and you have to pay attention to that. Uh, a lot of people, I've seen, I've talked to people that's hunted all their life, and they don't have a inkling of, they have no, they don't pay any attention to the wind, and and what the wind does, and <laughs> you're just you're just up against it. You just if you don't pay attention to the wind in those areas, it'll take your scent for a couple of miles sometimes, mm -hmm. right to uh, something like a deer or an elk. Uh, moose, not so much, but uh, elk, I've scared elk from a long ways away when the, the scent will carry right to them on a good wind or a bear. I've scared bears from a long ways away uh, when the wind will roll over and but uh, that, that heavy air uh, will, will go downhill and then around 
say nine ten o'clock in the morning uh, when the air starts warming up and gets lighter then it starts going uphill and so you have to pay attention to when the air rolls over I call it goes from going downhill to uphill and when you spot game or if you think a canyon has game in it don't go up that canyon necessarily it's better to go into a canyon to the side of it go up three quarters of the way and then come in from a side and hunt up because game animals they bed down about three quarters of the way up a canyon usually that's where you'll find them you, they'll they'll be about a fourth of the way down from the top. That's where they like the bed. And you'll come in and you'll run right into them a lot of times. But if you come in from the bottom and and that air has warmed up, it'll take your scent right up to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, little things like that makes the difference between a successful hunter and a, and a person that zeroes out just time after time and can't understand why. And that's kind of a good point about also knowing your specific terrain, right? Because what you're talking about is kind of foreign to me, even though, I mean, I live in the hill country of Texas, not not mountains by any stretch. And I take it for granted that you can't take the wind for granted. <laughs> you know, it's going to, it's going to switch and switch and, and change, switch and swirl and change on you all the time. Like you said, with the, with the temperature variances and, and whatnot, but that just shows the importance of say, I was going to come and hunt in Idaho. I would definitely, you know, get some local information from people who know what they're talking about and listen to it because that's, that's something that I wouldn't have thought about. Now I would, I would, I do try and make sure that I know the wind, but what you're talking about, the canyons and going in from the side, that's that's key knowledge that's variable depending on where you hunt, right? Yeah, these these canyons are just like chimneys. And like I say, the, the cold, heavy air in the morning uh, is, is going right down. And, and early in the morning, that's where you'll usually find, especially elk, They'll be in the bottom of those canyons down on those beaver ponds and stuff feeding. I've killed lots of elk. I've killed 26 elk. Mm. Uh, you'll find them right down on those beaver ponds and feeding. And, and the scent from that heavy air all around them is, is going right to them. And uh, then they'll, right at daylight, they'll start drifting back up into those canyons and, and draws to bed down. And then uh, later in the day, usually I'm I'm using 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning as a time frame, but usually 9 or 10 o'clock, the wind will roll over, get lighter, and then those uh, air currents will start flowing uphill and taking your scent right to them. If you, and if you go into the bottom of one of those canyons, that chimney effect will take your scent right up those canyons to them. So if you think there's game in that canyon, you can't go in it. You're just committing suicide. You've got to go up a side canyon. Like I say, go up about three quarters of the way and find a little pocket that will allow you to drop over mm-hmm. unseen and and go in. And you'll probably wander right into them where you can maybe glass or... Uh, I take a slingshot with me in my backpack. I always have it with me. Uh, I used to call them a flipper crotch when I was a kid. But uh, <laughs> uh, take that uh, slingshot 
or uh, wrist rocket, whatever you want to call it, and I used to uh, use a, a little mold that I'd cast lead, anymore, but lead's a little more expensive, so now I just use a rock or whatever, marbles will work, and if you get into a spot that looks like a good bedding area, you can a lot of times, if you're pretty handy with that, you can shoot those marbles or lead balls, whatever you're using, rocks, if, uh, and and you can actually work those animals right out of that pocket, right into the open or right up to you. And I've, I've done it several times. My mother my mother always was shooting grouse when we'd, she'd ride the horse in there with us. But, uh, you like to shoot grouse with them, so you don't have to use a gun. But uh, a slingshot is uh, a real good tool to make an animal stand up and uh, give you a shot. Well, that's that's an interesting tip. Well, okay, I have a question. So, have you ever run into ex- an experience? And I know you've hunted in a lot of different places. Have you ever run into ex- an experience where? you your assumptions got you in trouble and what i mean by that is like say you're chasing elk in uh in one part of the country and then you go somewhere else and you chase elk and they don't act the same or there's something about the terrain that makes them like something there that they don't like where you're used to hunting them and so you think about all these things that you just usually take for granted when you're hunting that don't apply with this new situation have you ever run into that well yeah that Elk are pretty smart. That's uh, right. I don't know they they're they're a pretty intelligent animal and uh, they can get into some unusual patterns that you can run into. I haven't uh, I actually haven't hunted elk in any other state mm. other than Idaho. Uh, I've been into them a lot in Montana and a little bit in Wyoming, but I've never actually hunted them. But uh, I've heard people talk about what you're referring to, but I actually haven't put it to use because I haven't hunted out of the state yeah, well, elk. Okay, well, it doesn't have to be elk. I'm just talking about in a hunting situation in general, something that in your home territory you take for granted, but when you're hunting somewhere else, it, it's it's changed. It could be the you know it could be the wind is different, or the animals behave different when the wind, or something that's been surprising to you. Uh, no, not not that I can think of. I can't. I guess because uh, other than Texas, I've never really hunted any place that wasn't public land. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, it's all it's all been public, and so just about the same rules would apply as far as the hunting conditions. Yeah. I can't I can't offhand Ryan think of any place that's threw me a curveball. Uh, one of the one of the things that I've heard of, I've I have yet to go, but somebody was telling me the other day that in Africa the animals sleep sleep at night and eat during the day, and that it was kind of counterintuitive to him that you know that you're not as concerned as you are here with the more crepuscular activity of the animals in the in, in the dawn and evening time. And so that's kind of the the thing I was thinking about. It's just things that you go to a new spot and you think, wow, these animals are so foreign. This situation is so foreign to what I'm used to hunting. Yeah, I I don't know. I seen, I remember reading uh, time about a guy talking about cloudy weather, referring to Africa. Hmm. He said if it was cloudy, that that seemed to make the animals... Uh, react different i can't remember just uh, 
exactly what he was saying, but I think he was saying that they they were harder to find if it was just cloudy, and that kind of puzzled me a little bit. I, I wish I could remember a little bit more specific about what he said, but uh, he talked like it being a cloudy day or overcast day or something. Interesting. Besides, uh, yeah, besides t- chasing whitetails in Texas and uh, elk and mule deer and moose in your home state, where 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 else have I know you've been to Alaska, correct? Yes. And what what was that trip? When was that trip, and what were you hunting? Uh, I a friend of mine, my dentist, and I um, I miss him terribly. Uh, we hunted in uh, eighty one. We had a bush pilot fly us one hundred and fifty miles west of Anchorage and and drop us on the Kuskokwim River, and we were there for seventeen days, living out of our backpacks, and uh, <clears throat> I shot. Uh, two caribou and three bears hmm. and in, in uh, Alaska you can uh, interchange tags if the price is equal or less and so I didn't shoot a moose on that trip uh, and so I you know, used it on another bear uh, I could have shot moose but I kept thinking I'd see one closer to camp and wouldn't have to backpack uh, <laughs> moose meat three days and right. uh, it, it, work out but uh seen a lot of games seen a lot of caribou a lot of bears those bears in every drainage we went up uh if as long as it had a little fresh water and there was bears and uh, and just you were constantly stepping on wild uh blueberries mm-hmm. just such a sick of blueberries by the time i got home i didn't eat them for five years <laughs> it was just we just were eating blueberries all day long. We'd stop and pick a handful and, and eating freeze-dried food. And then the first day we could legally hunt, I killed my first caribou. And so we had fresh caribou meat to eat. And that was really good. And uh, we, we let it cool out good the first day. And then uh, I would wrap my sleeping bag around it to keep it cold uh, behind an old uh, trapper's cabin. Hmm. It was uh, off on the mainland. We were we were camped out on a gravel bar. That's where you kept our tents uh-huh. uh, so that uh, we'd stay away from the meat and stay away. I seen a grizzly bear the first uh, morning, uh, really close, real, uh, way closer than I wanted him to be. Mm-hmm. But I stepped out of my sleeping bag to uh, do my morning uh, deed that everybody does and uh, looked up and... and uh, my gun was in the tent, and there's a grizzly bear about 40 yards away walking right down the sandbar. Oof. And I think separating the two of us was a little bit of water, and I just froze. And, and if he seen me, he didn't, uh, he didn't react, but I just was standing still. <laughs> Man, wow. He could have been to me in three seconds. Wow. What, he was a huge bear. What kind of gun were you using on that hunt? On that hunt in 81, I had a 340 Weatherby. I didn't take a handgun because mm-hmm. uh, I didn't know if I'd ever get back to Alaska, and uh, I wanted to be successful, and they say that was uh, 50 years ago, and, and they're close to it. And uh, we both took 340 Weatherbys, my dentist and I. So we, you share ammo, um, yeah. Yeah, if we needed to. Oh, that's an interesting point then. Was there a point in your hunting career when you went handgun only, or do you? Is that yes. important? Yeah. 
uh, actually quite a long time ago, about uh, 25 years ago or so. I can't I remember exactly, but uh, I can remember doing it. I, I shot a deer out here east of town with a 257 Ackley rifle, and that day I, I came home and started selling off rifles and buying more handguns. And, but uh, it, was, it was around 25 years ago. I just, that day was the end of it. What, what was the straw that broke the camel's back? Uh, it just got boring. It just got too easy. I was, uh, the success was just, uh, I don't know, I was ruining it for myself. Uh, there was so much game. Uh, I live in a spot where uh, there's game everywhere, and uh, I was just taking the the fun out of it, and the the uh, it just wasn't there. It was like scoring a touchdown every play, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I just had to put the excitement back into it or walk away from it, and I. Something I've done all my life, so I wasn't going to walk away from it. So I had to do something to, to uh, put the thrill back into the, into that, the game. I love that. And, uh, I can just imagine, you know, like, that's it. <laughs> We're moving out. Yeah. <laughs> you can yeah. sell my rifles. And, and started getting rid of guns. <laughs> wow. I had several bigger number ones and 364s and custom guns, and that was it. I get it. I get it. So when did you, you've been to Africa. When did you go to Africa and were you handgun hunting in Africa? Yes, both hunts. Uh, my first time to Africa was in 2001. Uh, and I was invited by Fred Smith from Bullberry Barrel Works. Uh, mm-hmm. Over the time I had 41 different barrels of Fred's. Wow. And, uh, just about everything. I mean, most of them were wildcats. Improved barrels. I, I like instead of a seven thirty waters, I had seven thirty improves. Mm-hmm. But I did have a seven thirty waters at one time. But, but I had a lot of improved cases. I liked, I liked uh, blown out shoulder bonded as a chamber wall with less case head thrust on the standing breech. I, I disliked the improved cases. The two two three actually improved. The 257 actually uh, improved. My my very favorite was the 250 uh, improved. The 250 Savage improved. Mm-hmm. That so many big deer with that, and I can send you pictures of them. I made some long shots, and and my favorite bullet was the 85 grain uh, nostril ballistic tip. That's a very tough, very good game bullet mm-hmm. that holds together really well. Was that on a, can you put that on a contender frame or was that an encore frame? It was an encore. Yeah. It was an encore. Yeah. But, I, uh, uh, I'm, that is one of the ones, the, as far as the improved goes, that's one of the ones that actually does a lot of good improvement. You know, and right when I was building rifles, I, I did several of those. Kind of one of those ones that punches above its weight. Well, how long was the barrel uh, on that gun? Uh, most of them I would get, uh, I'd have Fred uh, turn them to 15 inches, hmm. uh, but I, I took a 6.5-284 to Africa and a 3.38-284 to Africa, and then I took a 4.75 uh, line ball 
uh, Freedom Arms. Mm -hmm. that, those were the three guns I took. But uh, where Fred had invited me to Africa, I was pretty much obligated to take his, his guns, of course, and I enjoyed that very much. And then I, uh, I shot those for several years, but I was doing the same thing kind of with the uh, specialty pistols as I was doing with the rifles that just got, don't take this wrong. I was, I don't mean to, uh, I, I was getting pretty good with them. I was, I was working at almost every day and I was making some pretty impressive shots, but I, I don't mean to be bragging about it, but I was almost taking myself out of that sport. So I, well, uh, you know, Dick, it's not bragging if you can do it, right? Well, I, I don't mean to come across the saying it, but I, oh, trust me, more I trust me, you don't, you don't. And actually I, you're saying, what you're saying is that if you dedicate yourself to practicing at something, you can get very good at it, which I heartily endorse. I, I wrote an article for uh, Varmint Hunter magazine a few years ago, and uh, I had, uh, I don't remember if it was five or eight different barrels that I had shot groups under a tenth of an inch at 50 yards, wow. under a tenth of an inch. That's how good they were. And uh, they were, they're just phenomenal barrels, but, but anybody's capable of doing that. The barrels were that good. Uh, just you know, good optics and and get them with the with the right rest and stuff. And and I was shooting rock chucks and squirrels and, and uh, badgers. Uh, I'd go almost every day because like within just five or ten minutes, I was out in, mm -hmm. in any direction. So, uh, but uh, deer, elk, bear, antelope, anything. It was just. Uh, I made some pretty impressive shots. So what was Africa like the first time in, in 01? Uh, Africa, we went to a really nice place. It wasn't a, a real big place. He had uh, oh, six or 7,000 acres or something, which is, you know, you never see a fence in a place like that. Mm -hmm. It's the all were wild, really wild. I was stunned. Uh, they were so goosey. Uh, but a lot of game. And uh, I shot uh, three warthogs. I shot wildebeest. I shot impala. We got uh, between us, we got I don't know nine or ten animals. Can't remember. Uh, kudu, zebra. Uh, Fred shot a world's record water buck. Mm. And then uh, we just had a, a wonderful time. And the food was amazing. Uh, it couldn't have been any better. Well, I guess it could have been because the second time that we just went on, uh, I should have my animals back any day now. We went to an even better place, and I don't know how that's even possible, but uh, I shot five animals basically with six shots. They were they were having me put a finisher in all of them just as kind of a just-because thing of safety, but uh, basically it was... Five animals with six shots, and that was an Inyala antelope, a kudu, a zebra, a uh, gemsbuck, and a cape buffalo. And uh, I used uh, a Ruger 45 Bisley, shooting uh, 325 grain cast on the cape buffalo, knocked it down with the first shot, uh, broke. We broke the one shoulder and exited. 
the buffalo stood back up, but it was real wobbly. It was it was dead on its feet, but uh, that's that's one of them where you don't take a chance. Right. The pH shoot it again, shoot it again, and I'm waiting for it to turn to the other buck towards me. And it turns on a slight angle. I take a real steep angle shot with my second uh, cast bullet, and I go through the rib cage. I get the vitals, and the bullet hits the offside shoulder and stays in it and knocks it down on all fours. It goes straight down on all fours, and then it just slowly rolls over on its side. Hmm. And uh, the PH, he's the owner of the place, and he owns hundreds of thousands of acres. Uh, he walks up to me, big jovial guy, great big South African guy. He's an attorney by practice, but uh, walks up to me and he says, Dick, you are so much fun. And he grabs me by the shoulders and he gives me a kiss on the cheek. (laughs) 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 That's great. (laughs) Has me me, Uh, me give it another between the shoulder blades. A lot of people get dead, get killed by dead Cape Buffalo. Give it a shot, right? In the shoulder blades, yeah. and so I do. And uh, but it was already dead. Wow, but, uh, that is hilarious. That second shot, that, I, that uh, the real steep angled shot through all of the through his rib cage and almost, I'd say, at least three quarters length through that buffalo, Ryan. Uh, when those. Skinner's dug that bullet out and washed it off and gave it back to me. I weighed it back when I got home. That bullet was a 308-grain water-quenched bullet that I'd cast. It weighed 308 when I fired it, and it weighed 308 when they gave it back to me when I got home. I was, I, I just don't know how it was even possible, but it just kind of riveted the nose over a little bit. But I've showed that picture on the forum, and I, yeah. I pulled it. I pulled a couple other bullets out of the cases just to be sure because I just didn't see how that was possible. They weighed 308, and that's what that bullet. I still have it. I've got pictures of it. I'll send you one. That's that's really neat. That's interesting to hear that, and it's cool that you still have that bullet. Was that a powder-coated bullet? Yeah, it was a powder-coated bullet. It's still blue, and uh, it just kind of riveted the nose over a little bit. Uh, the nose is about uh, 50 caliber, maybe. Just kind of flattened it over a little bit, going through all of that buffalo. But uh, it's just stunned me. I, I still <laughs> I still can't really believe it. But uh, most of all of the bullets I had, uh, the one bullet stayed in the zebra. It was the 282 grain with a small hollow point in it. And... Uh, but the other bullets, I used the same 282 hollow point on the Kudu. Uh, it was a longer shot. It was about 80, 80 something yards, I think. That bullet passed through and broke both shoulders and dropped it right in its tracks. It never moved. Uh, same thing on my Gems buck with the Freedom Arms and a 250 grain bullet in the 41 Magnum Freedom Arms. Uh, dropped it in its tracks. That, that high shoulder shot is so deadly. When you break both shoulders like that, they just drop. Uh, doesn't necessarily kill them right instantly, 
but they're done. They're down. They can't move. Mm-hmm. And I just go over there and, and give it a finisher. So, same thing with the Inyala. Shot it with the 45. Uh, gave it a second shot when I walked over there. I know that you're a big fan of the 41 Magnum. And I love it. Yeah. And the more I get to know other handgun hunters, and this is my first year hunting with my 41 Magnum. What I'm curious because I feel like it's an underappreciated round. Obviously, that's kind of the consensus that the 41 fans have. What what are some of the things that you've hunted with the 41 that might disprove the myths about its efficiency? Well, the thing that uh, people will understand, uh, for 50 years I've used that, mostly with a 230-grain Keith bullet. And that that bullet came out of a uh, Seiko mold that I've had for years and years and years. But I've killed everything with it, bears, elk, antelope. Uh, I'm guessing at least 40 deer. But that's just a guess that I don't keep very good records. I've I've never been a records type guy. I I've got some of I've got thousands of pictures, but uh, I don't really keep records. Some of the numbers I can keep in my head. But uh, you take a 250 grain bullet in a 41, and a 250 grain bullet in a 44, and a 250 grain bullet in a 45. And you try to show me the difference. You can't because hmm. I I never recover those bullets. They always go clear through, even on the big elk. Uh, a few years ago, Jeff Hoover and uh, some other guys were here, uh, and we were shooting. I, I was shooting uh, my forty-one, and I was shooting a, a wide flat nose forty-one. That two hundred and fifty grain wide flat nose. Uh, has a wider knee plat than the Keith 44 bullet. Hmm. You look at them side by side, and you'd think that the 41 bullet was actually the 44 because the knee plat was wider than the, the famous 44 Keith bullet. And uh, it, it's every bit as good a killer, if not better, than the 429-421 Keith bullet that's been used all over the world. It's been used on elephants. Mm-hmm. And my uh, 41 uh, bullet with a wide flat nose has a wider me plat than the 44. So you can you can say all you want about paper ballistics, but uh, in the field, the 41 and a 250 grain bullet is will do anything that the 44 bullet will do, or the 45 with a 250 grain bullet. You just you can't show me any difference. I've I've killed too many animals. Uh, with all three, and I use all three all the time. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an amazing cartridge. I agree, and I really, I really have been enjoying mine. I have, we, as we talked last time, I'm, I'm still working on delving into the cast bullet side of things, and uh, most of the stuff that I hunt here it doesn't really make that much of a difference. However, it is, fa- it is fascinating to me. I'm always kind of one of one of the things that I live my life by one of the two models that I live my life by is to murder all sacred cows 
And just to, mm-hmm. you know, I love busting convention. I love uh, challenging things. That's just because just the only reason that you do it is because that's just the way you do it. And the 41, and I, I think that's, I'm speaking for a lot of handgun hunters, you know, that's kind of one of the things that we really like. And the 41 is one of those cartridges that it, that just helps you do that even more. Yeah, it's, uh, it will, uh, most of the time with the, with the right bullet, the 41 will outpenetrate the 44, the 45, uh, shoots a little flatter, but I don't put a lot of, uh, don't pay a lot of attention to trajectory with a revolver, you know, we're, we're talking handguns here. And mm-hmm. so trajectory make a big difference. Recoil doesn't make a big difference, but the edge there does go to the 41 again, because the gun is, uh, it's a little bit heavier because of mm-hmm. little smaller holes in the chamber and, and things like that. But, uh, it, there's no downside to a 41 Magnum, but there is an upside. Uh, it's just, uh, it, it seems to, I don't know why, to me, it seems like it kills a little quicker. The recoil is down. Uh, you take factory ammo, I think there's uh, like 16 foot pounds of recoil to a 44 and about 12 pounds of recoil to a 41. Mm-hmm. That's a fair amount. You know, you take... 25% or so, something like that. And I shoot, uh, I've gone more and more to the cast hollow points since powder coatings came along and allowed me to shoot these bullets softer and faster and get away with it without leading. Mm-hmm. I'm sitting here looking at two different bullets right here on the table as we're talking. And uh, the other night when I was hunting those deer, I was using it my freedom arms and a 212 grain uh, cast hollow point and i can run that bullet really fast on that 10 inch freedom arms and and get away with it and shoot that bullet i don't know what the hardest is i'm just going to guess and say a nine or so mm-hmm. but it holds together really well and i put five on a steel plate at 100 yards the other day that uh, I could cover with the palm of my hand real easy. And uh, it's just amazingly accurate and uh, a, a great bullet. So when you're hunting with the 41, do you put a range limitation on yourself? I mean, obviously within reason, but I'm just saying like, is there, is, is it a, is there a limit with which you say like, this is a good blank range cartridge? Well, with that Freedom Arms uh, and that light bullet, I, under good conditions, and what I mean shooting off the sticks or something where I'm solid uh, on a deer with that uh, lightweight bullet, I'm I'm comfortable to 200 yards. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I I don't go, I I don't ever look for a long shot. Right, I right, always right. try. To, and it, and, it, and it should be said that I think without exception, probably every handgun a handgun hunter uses is capable of killing at a lot further range than, a, than the shooter is able to shoot. Yes, and uh, I always carry two guns. I always carry an iron-sided belt gun, and then that uh, sometimes in the shoulder holster I'll have the scoped gun. Sometimes it'll be sticking out of my backpack where I can just reach over my shoulder and, and pull it out of the backpack. Mm-hmm. But I'll have a longer scoped gun, either one of the 44 Bisleys 
or one of the other scopes, then the 357 Maximum goes with me probably the most because I have such uh, confidence in the 357 Maximum. I don't think there's a better deer cartridge or antelope cartridge anywhere than a 357 Maximum revolver. That's interesting. With a 100 point, I think it's the supreme caliber. You have that in a revolver? Uh, yeah, I have a 10 and a half Ruger, and uh, I've killed, I don't know how many deer, and I think I've got uh, six antelope with it. What do you... I killed one. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say I killed one there with that uh, 327 uh, eight-shot Blackhawk also mm-hmm. uh, with that uh, 100 and about 140 grain. I call it the Furminator bullet, but that's a long shank hollow point, uh, 70 something, 74 yards, I think, with that. Uh, mm. Just those those big hollow points uh, with that powder coating on them, they're, they're tough bullets. They just work great. So I wanted to ask you, you mentioned scopes and whatnot. What, what kind of optics do you like to use? I mean, I assume like everybody, over the age of 40, you know, it's harder to see iron sights than it used to be. So what are you, what kind of sighting systems do you like to have on your, on your guns? Well, uh, I've almost always used iron sights. Uh, most, most everything that I've shot mm-hmm. has been iron sights, but, uh, I, I do have, uh, the maximum is scoped now. It wasn't before I killed, I don't know how many deer and, and one or two of the antelope with iron sights, but it's scoped now. Uh, it's got one of those no drill, I don't know if it's Weaver or who makes the Oh, Wigan. No yeah, yeah. Big uh, yeah. mm-hmm. Wigan. Uh, mm-hmm. It's got those mounts on it, I think that's one. And then I've got one of those uh, dual cylinder Buckeye uh, 3220, and then it's got the 32 H&R mag cylinder. Uh, I've used that. I think it's got one of those no drill mounts on it also. But uh, some of my, I've got a, a scoped uh, 10 inch 44 and then the Freedom Arms 41 Magnum, it's scoped. Do you like, uh, fi- do you like fixed or variable scopes? Uh, I like uh, the 3 to 12 uh, Burris a lot. On uh, If I'm shooting uh, like varmints and stuff on the single shots i've always preferred that three to twelve another good one is a two to seven uh, burris adjustable scope yeah it's classic but, uh, yeah and then on the uh on the, some of the bigger kickers i just like a straight four power loophole actually right now that's what i've got uh, on the uh, freedom arms I, I i had a two and a half to eight Leopold on it, and I switched it off uh, last year for some reason. It's got a four-power Leopold. It's one of those. I uh, sent it back and had the premier reticles put a, a finer reticle in there, and uh, that worked real good. You've uh, brought a couple of questions to mind. So, are you blessed with unnaturally good vision to be able to use iron sights at your age? I I was for a long time. My eyesight was really, really good. When I was shooting the uh, USPSA competition mm-hmm. uh, revolver for many, many years, and then uh, I started having a lot of eyesight problems. And then uh, 
about a year ago or a year and a half ago or something, uh, I had uh, cataract surgery and uh, I was scared to death that it wasn't going to help me because I was, I had uh, for a year or two, I was, even though I was shooting right-handed, I was crossing over and using my left eye mm-hmm. because my right eye was so bad. Uh, I was either using scopes or uh, being stubborn and switching over and using my left eye. That's having so much trouble. But when after I had that cataract surgery, they did one eye one week, and uh, then the next week they did the other eye. And when I went in the second week to get the other eye done, the one eye that they had fixed the week before was already 2020. Wow. And I was just tickled to death. And, and now I can see my sights really good. I'm, I'm using uh, Furman Garza uh, front sights. And I always have him narrow uh, to a tenth of an inch. I've had that done for probably 40 years. Uh, either uh, my, my son's a gunsmith. I've had him narrow uh, just the factory sights to a tenth of an inch. Uh, or uh, the last several years, Furman has made uh, custom sights for me. They're great sights. Uh, they're, they're worth the money. Oh yeah, and uh, and I I've got them on almost every gun. Uh, and then recently I've been using these uh, rear sights that him and Ronnie Wells are making, and and using that along with Furman's front sights, and uh, they they've just made all the difference in the world. And uh, I I like a revolver with iron sights. So I carry both, and I'm still using them a lot. But there's times when uh, there's a shot out there that maybe because of lighting conditions or a deer or an elk is standing in timber or in cover where I can't see it good enough with iron sights that I pull out that other gun, either out of the shoulder holster or I'll have it sticking out of my backpack where I can just reach back there and pull it out real quick. And uh, a lot of times I'll go prone off my backpack. I kill a lot of game off my backpack. I'll, I have a little small piece of leather that I pull out of that backpack that I keep right in the top. And I throw that over my backpack real quick so I don't burn it. Mm-hmm. And I just flop that thick piece of leather. It's very small, just about eight inches or so. So I don't get that cylinder burn. But I shoot a lot of animals prone. Uh, if I can't uh, set up the sticks or whatever. But I always have two ways of shooting off of something, either the backpack and the sticks, or when I shot that cow elk at 184 yards a few years ago, I shot it with iron sights in heavy snow, and I was using my walking stick. And I ran my wrist through that leather thong on the stick and then stuck it in the snow, and then the stick was laying against my left thigh. So it was real solid because I had my wrist through that sling. And uh, my buddy was sitting beside me. He was shooting her with the uh, rangefinder. She was coming down a ridge, and he was giving me the readings. And when she stopped at 184 yards, he, he called it out, 184 yards, and she wasn't going to come any closer. But she showed up so good in that white snow. We are standing 18 inches of snow. And uh, I shoot an old model 45 Ruger 
with a 260 grain Keith bullet. And uh, I knew I could make that shot. I've done it over and over and over all my life. And I double lunged her and just blood everywhere. She run right down towards our four wheelers. We was driving up through that snow and, uh, and, and piled up 30 yards from our four wheelers. Wow. Okay. So then I actually did a podcast with Furman and fantastic guy and loved his advice as one. It's one of the favorites of, and you know, I can send people and he's such a nice guy. He's always wanting to help people out. And I'm actually looking at the uh, front side and the rear sight that I, I got from him and Ronnie to put on my Ruger uh, 357 Bisley. But I'm curious to hear from you, your, your tips and tricks about being good with iron sights. Well, what I do with iron sights is that years ago when I was still in the service, just as I was getting out and Skeeter Skelton was starting to write, mm-hmm. he was talking about narrowing that front sight to a tenth of an inch. And uh, I started doing because they come factory at 125, and that's too thick for most guys. Maybe not for everybody, but uh, I would start having them. Uh, I'd go over to Dodd City, Texas, to an old gunsmith friend of mine, and he narrowed one or two to tenth of an inch. And then uh, I started taking uh, fingernail polish, and I would come down about, you know, how they're cross checkered. I would come down about two threads on that cross checkering and I would paint it white with fingernail polish and I'd let it dry. And then I would take the brightest color I could find. If it was pink or orange, I always like to use orange if I can. And I would paint over that white that had dried. And I'd usually come about two threads is all and paint it bright orange. And that gives you two siding distances. You use the top of the site as your regular siding distance and side in and say, or for hunting, you're better off to side in and say, out here, 50 yards, and site that in. Then go to the bottom of that color that you just sighted down two threads and, and shoot and see where that's sighted in. And you've got two, you've actually got two sites now you got your regular sight where you're level with your, your rear sight and the top of that front sight and say you're dead on at 50 yards and, and see where that where the bottom of that paint is. And you're going to have to use a six o'clock hold uh, now so that you can see that animal. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't hold and, and, uh, and, and shoot it and see where it's zero and you're going to have to back up and we'll have to move and see. And it's probably going to be somewhere around a hundred yards, might be even a little bit more. And you might have to take a razor blade and take some of that paint off, or you might have to add to it. You'll have to find out where you're comfortable, but it's like the old uh, Keith used to use, Elmer Keith used to use those gold bars. You mm-hmm. know, he'd have two gold bars in there and it's the same concept. But uh, I had one of my, I had my gunsmith son uh, put a gold bar in one of mine, but it was back when my eyes wasn't very good and I actually couldn't see it very good. I had to go back to the paint. Mm. Uh, and, I, and I'm still using the paint, but I had that one site with real gold in there. He was using gold that he was using for engraving on some of his high-end rifles. But uh, I couldn't see it very good before I had this cataract surgery. Interesting. But... So when but, you shoot, going, 
I was just going to ask, just to clarify. So when you shoot, so you're you're talking. You have a front sight with a few steps down the the stripes. You know the the check, not the checkering, but the uh, I cannot remember what you call that. The um, serrations. That's the word I'm looking for. You go yes, a, yes. Few, a few down the serrations, and you have that orange. Like you paint white, and then you paint over it with orange. Correct, so you can see it even brighter. Yeah. See, what happens is if you don't use the white underneath, if right. you just use nothing, but it's going to look black yeah. in the yeah. shadow. So you, you want to use white underneath it to make that orange kind of jump out at you. Understood. And so then, I and I remember seeing the gold bars. So when you're holding, when you're holding, just using the sight as as it is, you know, using the top of the sight, are you holding dead center, or are you a six o'clock guy, or where do you hold? Uh, uh, with the top one, you'll hold de- you'll hold dead center. You okay. want to hold it right on the hit. You, if you want to uh, hold dead center on the deer, hold heart and lungs. Mm-hmm. You'll hold everything so that you can see that uh, deer. But then when you go to the second uh, side, the bottom of that color, you're going to have to hold uh, at six o'clock so that the deer looks like it's setting on top of that. Mm-hmm. Or, or, or that won't work, and so you're gonna have to fool with the uh, with the uh, paint. You may have to come down a little more, depending on caliber and velocity, or you may have to take a razor blade and scrape some of it off. Uh, you may have to back up, but yeah, but find out where that's the zero. Because let's say let's say you've got a deer at a hundred yards, and uh, you shoot over it. Well, that tells you that the deer, you know, it's either it's either farther away or it's closer. So if you get two shots, you're going to hit it with the second mm-hmm. one if you're in the car. You, you know the distance of the deer now with the second shot because mm-hmm. you either went over or under because you know where that uh, paint is zeroed for. Right. And are you lining, so you, you take the bottom line of that paint and line it up with the top of your rear sight, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. That makes sense. And then hold yeah. it. Just like the old gold o'clock. bars. Yeah. Hold it at six o'clock so that uh, you can see that animal and, uh, and and break the shot. And and uh, that's what I did on that elk. And uh, I, I knew I was going to hit that elk before I ever made the shot because mm-hmm. I've made that so many times. And the thing was, that elk was standing out in that snow and it just looked like a barn door. Right. And yeah. to that leather sling and holding on to that gun with both hands, I was dead steady. I mean, yeah. uh, from shooting silhouette and competition all my life, that, that was not a difficult shot. If that elk would have been 50 yards and standing in the brush, I might not have been able to make it, might not even have taken it. Mm. Well, I always say shooting iron sights is like driving a manual transmission. You know, it's a kind of a kind of a lost skill, but an important one. Yeah, yeah. I I love iron sights and still use them all the time. But uh, there's times you can't take even a close shot if the deer, if you have a bad background or something like mm-hmm. that, uh, not an ethical shot. And I I always try to get the best shot I can. I don't ever try to take a tough shot. So I wanted to ask you, just uh, starting to wrap up here, your 
Is there anything, um, what are you looking forward to hunting next? Is there anything that's on your list that you either haven't done or are looking forward to doing again or want a certain representative of a species? Well, I, I'm still not giving up on Africa. I'm uh, almost 79 years old. It will be in the spring. And I'm kicking myself that I didn't shoot a sable. Uh, the sable was on my list. I had my choice. Mm-hmm. I, I, it was either uh, I could shoot a sable or a kudu for the same price. And uh, sable are normally very expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, a kudu is quite expensive, but I, I wanted the kudu. It's just been one of those childhood dreams all my life. And to take one with a handgun, and I shot a great kudu with that uh, 45. I made a long shot, made a great shot. It was two big bulls. And they were just coming out of the brush, and and he whispers to me, "You gotta, you gotta hurry." He said, "Shoot the one in the back," and I broke both shoulders and dropped it down. And I was like a little kid. I just had to gather myself, you know. It's just one of those things that just came together all at once. And I went over there, and I was uh, just made a perfect shot on it. But but we had just drove past a whole bunch of sable two or three times in the last couple of hours. I should have shot the sable and then paid the extra money and got a kudu. It would have been much, I wouldn't have had to pay that much difference and I'd got both. Uh, but now I may have to go back. <laughs> but, uh, this thing that's coming up uh, with the, uh, with this group of guys that's going over, I'm, uh, that's uh, tearing my heart out. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, you mean the, the HHI guys that are going in 2025? I'm I'm not signed up yet. I'm uh, Mike uh, uh, texting me almost every day, yeah. and uh, I don't know at this point. But I really wanted to say Larry got a nice one. My buddy that was with me. Mm-hmm. Anyway, well, I hope you do. That- I hope you do, Dick. There's not a more deserving person. <laughs> I would like to do it, but that's uh, that's the one that's uh, on my mind right now. I've, I've done about everything else. I've got everything here pretty much from moose and lion. I, I shot my lion uh, out of a tree at five feet. It was 350 on the Keith bullet. But, uh, and that was a dumb thing to do. Probably one of the two dumbest things I've ever done. That thing could have got me so fast that I was young and dumb and <laughs> it happened but, yeah. uh, like without uh, getting hurt but uh, it was a dumb thing to do i could have i could have leaned out and touched that thing with my muzzle i believe if i'd have leaned out far enough i actually believe i could have touched it but uh, so did you climb up in a tree with a lion yes uh i actually climbed up there about three different times we were trading off me and my taxidermist that passed away about five years ago old high school buddy uh we we both climbed up at the same time the lion just went crazy and so we knew it was going to attack us so we one of us would go down and stand by the fire in the snow and the other guy would go up and take pictures for a while it was below zero and then we'd trade off the other guy had go up and the other guy would go back down and stand with the fire and the dogs and, and warm up. And uh, finally, I, uh, we needed to get off the mountain because we were on snowshoes and long, long way to go to the truck. And and so I, I went up with, I had an 8 and 3 eighths Model 27 Smith uh, nickel. And uh, I went up and uh, 
and I was in one tree and the cat was in the other and I, my intention was to shoot it single action and then quickly give it another one double action. That was my intention. And when I shot that thing, the first shot, I double lunged it, it hit the ground before I could even pull the trigger. Those cats are so fast. It was just a blur, and that, that thing could have jumped me so quick. Wow. But I, I pulled the trigger, single action, and it was gone. It, it hit the snow and made one giant lunge in the air. We had the dogs tied up. You always tie up the dog mm-hmm. so the cat won't pull them. But it made one giant lunge in the air and just went limp in the air. It was dead and just folded up and plowed in the snow. But I didn't even get a chance to pull the trigger double action, and it was it was hit the ground. That's wow. how fast it was. Man, well, public... and I just didn't realize. Just as a young fellow in my late twenties, and <laughs> that's that's funny. Wow, I mean, funny is an amazing and public service announcement. Don't climb trees with mountain lions. <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was a dumb thing to do. We chased it for 11 hours on snowshoes. Oh, wow. We were just, we had ice from sweat. Ice would run down, our snow, sweat would run down our jacket in the front and freeze. We had icicles from our from our chin clear down, halfway down our jacket. froze wow. salt. Uh, it was a terrible day, but a, but a fun day. Yeah, it sounds like something only somebody in their 20s could do. <laughs> Uh, I was breaking through the snow. I was heavier. Frank could go on top mm-hmm. uh, with his snowshoes. He was lighter, but uh, I was breaking through. So it was, it was, uh, that's work. A memory. It was something. Wow. Okay. Man, that's wild. Okay. So last question, what's something I'm always curious about because I, uh, I'm a food, food lover. What is your favorite, um, game meat and way to prepare it uh my favorite game meat is just uh probably elk uh back straps and i just uh like to cut them fairly thick and uh medium rare uh just just in a, a cast iron skillet with a little uh little onion, little mushroom or whatever, and uh, I, I just don't think you can beat it. Uh, we, when we're not backcountry, we we eat those backstraps usually as soon as we kill them. Same way with caribou or whatever. I didn't have a Dutch oven with me. It's too heavy in, the, in Alaska, flying in out of a bush plane, mm. living up in your backpack, but uh, it's good in a skillet but uh, any any wild meat is is amazing just don't overcook it if you overcook it you know this uh, it dries out there's not much fat but uh, you you're a man after my own heart and the more i talk to you the more i um feel simpatico because that's that is pretty much the way i eat uh deer meat is cast iron skillet simply seasoned cooking it rare medium rare and enjoying it that way and um, my my girls eat it the same way and uh, that's one of my favorite things about hunting is being able to feed my family yeah you can't beat it you just can't beat it it's uh, it's amazing meat it's not gamey 
uh, I, I love it. And uh, <laughs> I hope I shoot one here in the next few days. It closes Tuesday, and I'm hoping to run up to Montana here with my buddies. Uh, my, my one buddy has a Mexican restaurant here, and then he, his brother has a, a taco bus up in Montana, and he knows all those ranchers. And we go up there and shoot those fat white-tailed does on those river bottoms and it doesn't even taste like venison it's just so amazing those deer are in great shape they're born on those river bottoms and they die there they they never go in the mountain and uh, i used to shoot one one day with one caliber and one the next day with another caliber and uh, i've killed dozens of them up there i usually shoot two and uh, they're just they're so fatter than i am and uh, <laughs> in wonderful shape and there are lots of them that's fantastic well Dick once again uh, thanks so much for doing this with me you're fascinating gentlemen love that you just share all your information and experience with us handgun hunters and uh, I know down the road we'll probably do do another well after you get your sable we'll definitely have to talk about that story but I really appreciate you doing this with me (laughs) Brian it's great to talk to you I uh my kids were born in texas and it's uh my second home i love the people down there friendly people i got a lot of friends in texas and uh, i miss it well we'd love for you to come for a visit so be sure to hit me up if you do i'll do that i like fredericksburg yes sir well thank you so much appreciate talking to you thanks another good one I know I always say that, but they're all, they, it is, it's a good one. Dick is a fantastic gentleman. I've, I say the same thing about a lot of guys, but that's true because a lot of the people that we interview guys and gals in the handgun hunting community are just fantastically kind, generous people. Dick is no exception. And I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation. He really surprised me with that story about his mountain lion and being so close to it, but that's the kind of experience you gain having hunted for 50 years or more. And I really do hope that uh, I get to hunt with Dick someday and just loved talking with him. And I hope you enjoyed it. And I will see you again next time on the Short Gun Sportsman. Thank you. This podcast is produced by Handgun Hunters International. HHI is the only organization dedicated solely to supporting and growing the sport of handgun hunting. Membership gets you access to our great, well-moderated forum where friendly handgun hunters of all experience levels share stories and information from folks that have actual experience in our sport. We also host giveaways to our members of guns, gear, and ammo every month, and each prize is worth several times what membership costs. In addition to this podcast, we publish a free digital magazine, The Six Gunner, which is written exclusively by HHI members. If you are a handgun hunter or support handgun hunting in any way, you need to be a member of HHI. Join today at handgunhuntersinternational.com. Again, if you have any questions on how to get started in handgun hunting, please reach out to me at ryan at handgunhuntersinternational.com. If you think we deserve it, please leave us a five-star review and don't forget to follow Handgun Hunters International on social media at handgunhuntersint. God bless and good hunting. Good hunting.